Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, this is a lovely email from David, and I can't even remember why we were talking about putting on weight. Uh, but he says, putting on half a stone in seven or eight days is perfectly possible if you take a cruise holiday, because the only time all the restaurants are closed is between 5.15 and 5.30 a.m. Also, the bar opened at 6 a.m. to stimulate your appetite and was conveniently named the first wave. I was That's a terrible name yeah, for it, David. Awful. I was so excited to have my first afternoon buffet that when I sat down, I discovered I had two scones with jam and cream on my plate alongside two vegetable samosas. Oh, well, I feel the first wave of something coming over me, David. Welcome to Off Air with Jane and Fee. That does. <laughs> I'm sorry, you've let your, you've let this yourself down and the podcast down with that. Two jam scones with cream and two vegetable samosas on yeah. the same plate. Disgusting. So do you know what? I'm I'm a huge fan of the buffet. Jane and uh, we went on a holiday once where it was an all-inclusive thingy jiggy and uh, there was a wonderful wonderful lunch buffet and I don't know why but I just I was having a massive carb overload at the time I used to have every single type of potato and that was my lunch so a roast potato a potato salad some mm. potato roshti with a little bit of mashed potato possibly a tiny bit of ketchup on the side and that was lunch well yeah because there's veg and tomato ketchup oh, um, well that would be if it was on MasterChef that would be potato six ways well well, you know yeah. my theory about lamb three ways. Who's ever gone into a restaurant and said, I'd like lamb one way, please? Just one way. Just one way. Just a lamb chop. Do, just you, have one any, way. do you have any two-way lamb tonight? No, it's just lamb three Actually, ways. Uh, well, I think that's probably very niche, slightly unpleasant. No, what? We, we can't even go there. <laughs> it's what? Lamb two ways. Oh dear! Oh, right, okay. It was um, Wellness Wednesday today. Do you feel better? Oh, I know. That was why um, we were we were talking about putting oh, on weight okay, because we we had uh, a, a very interesting conversation with a doctor, Hazel Wallace, about detoxing, and Hazel actually was good enough to basically make it clear that there is no such thing as detoxing. So don't waste your money on these quite expensive regimes and these particularly expensive cleansing teas uh, because essentially they're laxatives, and um, there's just no. You, you may as well just leave your body to do its own business, which, if you're fortunate, I think you'll find it will. Yes. Uh, because we all know what the body does to detox. Well, I just like the fact that she started off with that very sensible medical explanation of mm. what your internal organs are for. 
And you're right, it's your liver and your kidneys and your bile duct yeah. constantly detoxing. So if you yeah. just stop drinking all the stop drinking, Jane, all the time, uh, then that will be a detox enough. She was a nice woman. Yes, it was interesting. I mean, I think that there is this emphasis in there at this time of year and it's slightly ridiculous on fresh start, new body. Uh, it's, it's all bullshit, isn't it? Well... Um, it I, is, but I'm I'm always drawn to it. I like those well, kind yes, of. I didn't say I wasn't drawn to it. Yeah, I just said I, I like those markers where you just go, uh, you know, I'll have a, I'll I'll have another Cornish pasty today <laughs> because tomorrow it's the start of a whole new year and we'll yeah. be fine. I've done that. I think nearly all my adult life. I haven't finished my Christmas chocolate, so uh, it just would be rude to just leave it. So I'm still chowing down on that. And my dry January um, lasted. Until yesterday evening when I got in after work. I just thought, oh, I'll just have a little bit of a drink. Really? What, as soon as you got in from work? I did, actually. It reminded me, in fact, I think I was channelling my own mother because all she used to do, she used to come in from work, slam the door, I can hear it now, go straight to the fridge and make herself quite a stiff drink before she confronted her evening shift. Because, of course, that is the sad truth, isn't it, about lots of women's lives, is that, um, and not just women, she said, suddenly remembering. Um, Say it in a nice voice. I, and not just women. Not, uh, not just women. And not just uh, when you. you come in, you shut the door, and then you begin you begin your evening shift of cooking and flipping washing. I went on um, a full scale washing strike um, during the period between Christmas and New Year and put a message on the family WhatsApp group that just started. The washing situation remains critical. <laughs> And it, for, it did actually get their attention because what they do is I do the washing and then it's not collected. Oh. So it just m mounts up this massive amount of clean washing that isn't claimed by anybody. And therefore, I then I fill up three laundry baskets with clean washing, uncollected. I have no more baskets. I can do no more washing. Why don't they do their own washing? Well, they just don't. They're in their 20s. No, they're no, they're. They're not. One is only 19. <laughs> One is at the Cornish pasty end of 19. She's very much at the Greg's end of 19. OK. Uh, we had a really serious couple of guests on the programme today, didn't we, Jane? No, we did. And and um, it's worth saying that what we're... I mean, obviously, we're still in quite the sort of nursery slopes of doing the live radio show, aren't we? And it has already changed a bit since we started in October and it will continue to change. But what we hope to do is every day, Monday to Thursday at half past three or there, about have an interesting guest and sometimes it will be somebody really well known sometimes it will be a writer uh, tomorrow's is a writer really interesting woman um, and sometimes it will be somebody who's been in the news and not necessarily for headline busting recent reasons but today's guest was Anusha Ashuri. Anusha had spent five years in prison in Iran in the absolutely hideous Evin prison in Iran. Uh, it's quite notorious actually, uh, a foul place in which hideous things I think happen to far too many political prisoners, uh, opponents of the uh, Iranian regime. And he only came out of prison in the April of last year alongside Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. So you might know that side of the story. You might not know some of the detail uh, of his capture. And that's what we started asking him about. What happened to him the day that he was taken by Iranian police? I was just an ordinary person living an ordinary life. And uh, when I was going to take uh, my suitcase to the local market to have it repaired, as I reached the bottom of the hill where my mom lives, uh, I was surrounded with these people and they asked my name. And after they ma making sure that it was me, they just manhandled me into the car and we drove off 
and I was blindfolded. And you know the rest of the story. Mm. What did you think uh, was going to happen to you immediately? I mean, my heart was coming into my mouth. I was numb from head to toe. I didn't know what was happening. And uh, words cannot explain the feeling uh, that I had in that time. Were you taken straight to Evan prison? No, I was taken to what they call a safe house. And my interrogation started there. And when they uh, realized that uh, I am not cooperating with them, they, they took me to my mom's place. They searched my room and they took uh, quite a, a number of my belongings. And from there, we headed towards Ebbing Prison. At what point uh, did they say anything to you about the the charges that they had laid upon you, the prospect of those being tried in court, any kind of legal representation. Was there anything of that in the handling of you? Uh, the next day they took me somewhere where they gave me uh, my indictment and I read it and I was just, I was just fro frozen there. And I didn't know what to say. I started crying and telling them that it was a mistake. But then they took me back to my cell. And quite a while later, when I was transferred to the prison itself, uh, I was taken to that notorious Judge Salavati uh, for me to start my trials, of course. And the conditions that you've endured are just horrendous, aren't they? And I know it must be quite painful uh, to have to still be talking about them. But can you just give us some idea of what your day-to-day -day life was like in that jail? I used to call it a, a circle of hell or valley of hell. And uh, these are just a, a repetition. And you're just, if you don't have a plan, plan, then you can easily go insane. So I had to make a plan for myself. But um, fighting uh, bed bugs, cockroaches, rats uh, was an everyday uh, uh, business and we couldn't get rid of them. In fact, you can see just a few of the bed bugs that I had collected. And in fact, I am planning to hold up an exhibition and I'm going, hopefully I'm going to put the, all these on display. Okay. So you've just held up a piece of paper onto which have been squashed numerous bed bugs. That is quite a thing to see. Uh, so if we spool forward uh, to the time when you were released, Anusha, were you actually told very much about what was about to happen to you? No, up until the, uh, the day before that, I didn't know. And uh, it was only in the, I think it was in the afternoon of that day when I was called downstairs. Uh, there are certain forms that you have to sign if you want to make a request for conditional release. They usually give these forms now and again, uh, different occasions, uh, so that you would fill them up and ask for clemency. And uh, usually they are rejected. But this time, when I was called downstairs, the head of the wing was insisting that I should hurry up and sign it because he has to go quickly to the intelligence uh, base there, the 209, as they used to call it. So I was a bit hopeful that uh, something is happening because I never asked for that. And now they're asking me to do that. Mm. 
And that's when uh, it, the, the thought was initiated in my mind that this time maybe different. Were you told that you had to admit to the charges that had been made against you in order for you to be released, in order to save yes. the face of Iran? Yes, the night before my release, I was made to sign uh, a few pieces of paper. I was even, it was dictated to me what, you, what I should write. In fact, when I didn't write it the way they wanted it, they, they, the man tore, tore the piece of paper off and he asked me to uh, write whatever he is dictating to me. And I knew that if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be released. They, 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 they were not joking. Mm. But I mean, everybody can understand you'll get to the point where you would sign that in order to be able to get on the plane. Can you describe the moment when you saw your family again? Well, when I was taken out of the prison compound in this uh, Ministry of Intelligence car, uh, we parked there and I didn't know why. And uh, moments later, another car came behind us and, and parked and uh, they asked me to get out and I got out and it was my mom who was in the car behind us and we hugged and she was crying. It was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, and they took us to my mom's apartment from there on. Is it possible to describe how something like this affects the rest of your life? There hasn't been a single day uh, that I haven't had flashbacks and you know, some of them are really disturbing. And in fact, uh, Hostage International are arranging for a uh, trauma treatment, which is in fact, I think it's government's responsibility to do that. But uh, the charity organization, Hostage International, is actually looking into it and I have an appointment to meet a psychiatrist. Right. Well, that, that's quite disturbing. So you're, you're, you're saying that, in fact, the British government, the Foreign Office, have not provided you with any aftercare, particularly? Uh, yeah. That, when we were released and we were taken to that safe house just after my return uh, to the UK, very superficially, uh, there was a psychiatrist who came and he interviewed me for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, an MD, a GP came and she also talk to me, and that was it. What is your view of how the British government handled your whole case? Uh, we can actually ask this question in a broader sense. Uh, how did they uh, treat uh, this case with Nazanin, for example? It's just so, a combination of so many blunders. And as Nazanin uh, mentioned it quite correctly, how many prime ministers and foreign uh, foreign ministers did we have to go through for us for that 200 million pounds uh, 400 million pounds to be to be paid for us to be released small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You will know by now, if you're a listener to Times Radio, that the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been speaking today. It's actually his first speech of 2023 and he made five promises. He unveiled new education policies, including this plan to get all children to study maths up to the age of 18. I am now making numeracy a central objective of our education system. Now that doesn't have to mean a compulsory A-level in maths for everyone, but we will work with the sector to move towards all children studying some form of maths to 18. Right. Now, we spoke to the comedian and former maths teacher Ramesh Ranganathan only yesterday and asked him what he would now do to improve education. As we get to know more and more about what kids need and how different children are, this sort of one-size-fits-all approach to education I don't think is good enough. And I know that we've moved beyond that and it's a very difficult thing to tackle, but that would probably be what my channel my energies in. You know, you teach kids that found maths really challenging and there's part of you that thinks, why am I teaching them to add fractions with different denominators together when they're never, ever going to do this ever again or need to? And, you know, the answer, because it's in the exam, is just not a good enough answer. Do you know what I mean? And, and there's, a, there's a, like an argument that actually what you should be doing is focusing on stuff they're actually going to need. When I used to do parents' evenings, you come across so many parents who just have developed a complete and utter fear of the subject or anything to do with maths. They're just going rubbish at this and forcing a, a like a single curriculum towards people regardless of their levels of interest and ability. And I think that a more variated kind of curriculum would be good. That's interesting. That's the view of a former maths teacher and highly successful individual now, of course, Ramesh Ranganathan. So to Bobby Seagull, maths teacher, broadcaster, writer. Bobby, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Now, I don't think there's any doubt, is there, that maths is hugely important, but what you want is useful mathematics rather than the theoretical, complicated stuff that does leave many of us completely behind. Mm. And I say there's two arguments to this. One, there is, firstly, I would say, that there is a need for a nation like the UK to develop mathematicians that can do the algebra, geometry, because these are going to be the scientists, the technical uh, people, the mathematicians. But I teach many students, like Ramesh mentioned, that find maths really challenging. And because of their negative school experience, they go on to hate the subject for the rest of their life. And when they come to looking at a bill or they're planning any budgeting, or even they're looking at like the times for how to cook a turkey, they're like, oh my God, my brain's fazzled with numbers. So I think the key thing with uh, the Prime Minister's initiative, and I welcome doing more maths, I'm obviously going to as a maths teacher, is going to be the detail. The devil will be in the detail. When he means by more maths from 16 to 18, what exactly is it? Do we have enough teachers for it? Will it involve maths that's like personal finance? Because that's what students are crying out for. Um, So I think the details are going to be very important for me. I've got an interesting email here from a listener who says, how on earth does forcing young people with, for example, dyslexia and ADHD to suffer two further years of maths help anybody? My daughter is studying the performing arts and she can't actually do a degree without a maths GCSE. She's got an IQ in the top 2%, but she just cannot pass a maths GCSE exam. So she's having to study for it for the duration of her BTEC and she's finding it pointless, torturous, and it's causing her mental distress. So, Bobby, you're right. There are some people who just can't, can't get past their fear of mathematics for a string of no doubt good reasons. Why should they be made to carry on suffering in this way? It doesn't seem fair. 
the thing is, uh, there is definitely a small proportion of the population. In fact, it's two to five percent who have something known as dyscalculia, which is sort of the equivalent of dyslexia for maths. And for this percentage of the population, doing conventional maths through mainstream exams is genuinely challenging. And that's something where mainstream solutions won't necessarily work. But for the vast majority, that's like 95 to 98 percent of the population. I would say maths is a skill. It can be hard, but they can do it again with the right teaching, the right mindset, uh, the right type of maths. Again, not just learning trigonometry and Pythagoras, but learning the relevant things again, like uh, decimals and percentages. But I do sympathise with people who find uh, maths extremely challenging. Is Rishi right, though, to, to just illuminate the changing world that we live in and the fact that the skills our children will need are different to the ones that we might have needed? He talked about being able to look at statistics, to understand data. That will be more in our daily lives now, won't it? And I think I applaud the Prime Minister for that um, recommendation because... If you look at the jobs that are being created now and the jobs in the next 5, 10, 15 years, you are going to need people that understand risk, understand data, understand stats. So you don't need to have incredible mental arithmetic. As my students sometimes say, but sir, I've got a calculator and I can do everything on this phone. That's true. But for now, phones, calculators, they don't interpret data for us. That still requires humans to say, what does this mean? And I'll give you a little uh, anecdotal example from a lesson. A few years ago, I taught a year eight class and we are working out the average height of students. We put up all the heights of the students on the board, 148, 163. And I told them, add all these numbers up and divide it by the 25, 30 students. And one student put their hand up and said, sir, I've got the answer very quickly. And he said to me, it's about 15 meters. And I said, you sure 15 meters? And he pointed <laughs> his calculator and says, look, the calculator says 15 meters, sir. I'm correct. And I'm like, well, the calculator was correct, but you obviously tapped in something incorrectly. And that's one thing I think we should sort of understand slightly. Maths is not just being able to tap in numbers into calculator. It's trying to understand, does this number make sense? Does my insurance premium make sense? Does this 10% discount make sense? It's trying yeah. to give people a sense that they can understand numbers in the real world. Yeah, maths for life is what everyone needs to know, surely. Yes. Um, and this is where I think maths almost has a bad bit of PR in schools because when most parents, you talk to them about maths, they'll talk about Pythagoras and trigonometry and learning algebra. I love those things. But <laughs> those aspects of maths scar people. But they all do need to understand how to check their bank statement, how to check what an interest rate means, how to check how long to put the turkey in for Christmas, how long to boil water for all these things, or boil an egg rather. The, all these things are practical maths. And I think this requires the government to look at the curriculum and go, how can we change it to make it more relevant? And, and just one bit of defence, I will say, there is a course that's not well known. It's called Core Maths. Right. And it's a post-16 course aimed at students who've passed GCSE, but not doing A-level. This does cover things like data, risk, and statistics. But I think it's a case of there's one third of children that fail GCSE in maths every single year. And that simply isn't good enough for Britain. Mm. Right. I mean, and do you hold to the notion that you shouldn't do a degree in this country without that GCSE maths equivalent qualification? This is challenging because if someone has genuinely something like dyscalculia, to, and that's two to five percent of the population, yet they're a brilliant writer and thinker, then we need to be more innovative. And as, as Ramesh said earlier, one size doesn't fit all. There should be obviously a general rule, but I think there should be discretion based on someone's individual circumstances.
Really interesting. Thank you very much, Bobby. Um, actually, maths in its purest form, uh, and I'm talking as though I know what I'm talking about, which I don't, I've been assured by lots of people, is a truly beautiful thing. It's an art, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and this is where mathematicians often really revel, like at, at university when you're doing pure mathematics and you're spending ages looking at the number zero and the consequences of getting things closer and closer to zero. Um, and there's a beauty in that. And the same way in which art music, uh, literature are expressions of human creativity. Mathematics is too. And I think we shouldn't, you know, was it throw the, the, the baby out with the bathwater? Mm. There is a need for practical, functional maths, but at the same time, we need to appreciate the beautiful side of maths. In the same way in which I need to know how to paint my fence in the back garden, I can still appreciate Michelangelo uh, at the same time, but I don't need to be able to do a Michelangelo to appreciate how important it is to paint my fence correctly. Bobby Siegel. So he's such an enthusiastic proponent of why maths is important. I really enjoyed listening to him because it's just too easy to say, I don't like maths and I've got a phone. <laughs> and yes. those were two things that he managed to dispel within the first three yeah. minutes of his entertaining no, conversation. It's a slightly, well, it's a real, I don't think it's just British, but that there is a sort of tick in British society, isn't there, to say, I can't do maths. <laughs> and somehow, as though uh, it makes you interesting if you can't do maths, it doesn't. Um, if you can't do maths, but you're really good at reading or history, well, bully for you, but it doesn't make you special. Um, I think I, I just feel in a way that um, I wish I'd been better taught maths at school. I think my kids who enjoyed maths were better taught than I was. But frankly, I may not have really had an aptitude for it, but there is no reason not to try. And I, I was saying to you earlier, my maths O-level, grade B, um, is the is the single greatest achievement of my life because I properly worked for that, knowing, um, just as now actually, that you cannot go to university without a qualification of that standard in maths. You still can't. So if you haven't got one, you have to keep trying to get one. And we did have a really interesting email from a listener who says, look, my daughter is, she's gifted, she's really keen on the arts that's where her strengths lie uh, but she is um, being made to press on with maths in order to have even the faintest chance of doing a degree but I was quite interested by what Bobby said at the end about this core maths qualification that you can do which I think uh, I, I understood from what he said to be a destination for exactly that kind of person that kind of student who's not enjoyed maths hasn't excelled at the current syllabus but uh, still needs to better understand yeah, it. Yeah, but I don't think a core maths will get you into university. Well, I don't know. We should check that out yeah, because should, maybe it will. I think and it's something you can carry on doing if you're not doing maths A-level, but you still need um, GCSE equivalent pass in maths to get to uni. Yeah, you you definitely still need a uh, six or above to get into most sixth form colleges as well. Right, well, so. um, I mean, it's interesting that that was the sort of bit of um, Rishi Sunak's speech today that was leaked to get the headlines today and actually to create a talking point which I mean they know what they do they know what they're doing when they chuck these um, slightly dead cats onto the table because they work and we have been spending a large part of today talking about maths. So I'm just trying to think what other part of Rishi's speech you know if you were sitting there in the press office thinking what will we put out well, for the morning bulletins. I'm just trying to think what it would have well, been. Well, we both we did point out the um, violence against women and girls thing. Yes, and that was a very good mention from him. Yeah, because he, well, in case you missed it, he actually said we must um, do something about violence against women and girls. And that means men, uh, to a degree, have to take responsibility for their own behaviour, which I think we thought, although it doesn't seem like a lot, it seemed to be a bit of a first. Yeah. 
Uh, I wonder whether very many other people will pick up on that. There was a, a, a continual use of innovation. Maybe I would have put out something on innovation. I'm interested always by what politicians mean by innovation because it's a lovely word, isn't it? It just conjures up this new world of technology and we're going to find something and make something completely different, sends us into a different orbit. But it's it's often not like that. You look at what's happening in Silicon Valley at the moment with all that innovation. It seems a harsh world to be in. Yeah. Right, uh, lots of emails. This one is about my pronunciation again. I just, I actually can't make head nor tell of it. It's from Emily, uh, who starts off very kindly, delighted to have found this podcast. Uh, Fee, would you allow me to give you a little help with the pronunciation of the one that I can't pronounce, Saskatchewan? Uh, that way you two can feel confident using the word in everyday parlance. Immediately after you and Jane decided that as a general rule, place names are pronounced with the emphasis on the first syllable, you trot out Saskatchewan, much to my relief. You did not then refer to it as Saskatchewan, but correctly as Saskatchewan. My slight correction is to the two final syllables. Stay with us, everybody. You pronounce Ewan as you read it, Ewan. Canadians pronounce the Ewan, Ewan probably due to our penchant for lazy speech. So what does that mean it is, Jane? Sas that's, Saskatchewan. That's where I'm struggling. I yeah. don't know. Ben? Come in, Ben. You're still awake. He's not allowed to speak. <laughs> yes, you are allowed to speak. Hello, I think ben. you said it right the first time. Saskatchewan. Yeah, I think she's happy with how you said it. Oh, OK, yeah, good. Yeah. Right. Uh, thank you for both being you, says Emily. Sometimes I'd love to be someone else. <laughs> I know <laughs> I would. thank you. Um, Who would you be? Uh... Oh, Mariella Frostrup, I think. Would you? Yeah. You should be thrilled to hear that. Mm. Well, you just want an earlier time for this show, don't you? You do. You said that the other day. <laughs> I just said some of us peak earlier during darling, the day. Darling, she's not well by five. <laughs> well, no. Um, Emily also says that she enjoys uh, Mary Lawson too, or I assume she does because she says she thanks me for championing Mary Lawson. Not as hilarious as your fascination with beavers after you watched that documentary. <laughs> But a shout out to Canada. Yes, um, I'm completely over beavers. I'm into Marie Antoinette now, as regular listeners will know. Um, following today's discussion with Ramesh Ranganathan, you mused about whether IVF and fertility had been a topic brought up outside of his latest sitcom. Well, when we embarked upon our journey of IVF, Ben Elton's novel, oh, I remember this actually, Inconceivable, became our Bible. And it did help diffuse what was a highly stressful period in our lives. Unfortunately, it contributed to making me a little too blasé about the whole process. And on the second occasion, and after installing my wife in the ward for the egg harvesting procedure, I was dispatched to the slightly seedy room with well-thumbed pornographic magazines to provide a sample. Knowing I then had a couple of hours to spare, I naturally arranged a game of golf, but due to some delays in paperwork, I was running a bit late. There was one other very nervous-looking gentleman waiting, and as you might expect, particularly in the UK, it's the last place on earth that you would make eye contact, let alone hold a conversation. However, and I think you'll appreciate this with your newfound enthusiasm for golf, Jane, needs must. Excuse me, I said, are you here to do the, um, business? I will never forget the horror in his eyes as he nodded. Would you mind awfully if I went first, only I've got a tea booked in 20 minutes, I asked. He never said a word, but continued to nod vigorously. And so in quick time, I was in and out, chucked my sample at the nurse as I rushed out and bid him good luck with, if I'm not mistaken, and much to my shame, a wink. 
Our attempt was successful and we have two delightful young men as a result of IVF, the eldest of whom lets it be known to all and sundry that he was conceived in a test tube. Meanwhile, as for the other gentleman, I can only think he's still in the room. I will never know, but I do hope they were successful too. I'm listening from Perth in Australia. A colleague and I love the show. That's from Adam. Uh, we just need a few more of your colleagues. Just the one is good, Adam. It's a good start. Uh, there are two of you listening, but I don't know where you work. It's a huge office, probably. It could be. Um, spread the word. But thank you for that. Very, thank you for that. Adam adds, uh, we have a competition as to whose email will get read out first. Hopefully this one does it. Well, it depends whether or not your colleague is perplexed either who's from Melbourne in Australia. Because if it is, it's a draw. <laughs> well, it can't be, unless your office is enormous or I've got the size of Australia wrong. wrong yeah. Oh, I was watching Miriam Margulies. Oh, I saw that last in night. In her tour around yeah. Australia. She's just, she's such a, uh, she's such a pleasure to watch. You and I have both interviewed her and it's a challenging position to be the interviewer on I, stage with Miriam. I think I was, although I wanted to enjoy myself last night, I, do, I was sitting on the edge of the sofa I couldn't fully relax because I kept waiting for her to shock me. Well, I think it's different, isn't it, in a pre-recorded travelogue, which I think she does really well because the, you know, the moments of Miriam's frisson uh, with the live world uh, can obviously be <laughs> edited out, although not all of them are. No, but was, it's a very good watch, actually. She was effing and jeffing. If you're um, looking for something. She's examining uh, whether Australia really does have a fair go mentality. And it's actually written into their constitution that Australia should be a classless place uh, with a, a kind of fair Is go. It? I think that's ridiculous. No, and I think, you know, the more she delves into yeah. it, obviously the more she finds that there's uh, prejudice riven through there it. There were but some shocking mullets in that show last night, weren't there? Well, there were some quite... I tell you what, the Australian male has a brave attitude to hair, speech... And uh, all kinds of things. I, I wish those young boys in school oh quite a lot of luck with their life. I, she interviewed a group of private school boys. Yes, and they were grown men. And, you know, sometimes you do see lads who must be in the sixth form at school and you'll see them walking down the road and their, their school uniform is so ill-suited to their body shape because they've simply outgrown everything and their mum and dad have obviously decided they're not shelling out for anything new because they'll be leaving shortly. Well, I found it astonishing that these boys who were in sixth form, weren't they? Shorts. They were wearing shorts and blazers and little ankle socks. It looked, I have to say, utterly ridiculous. It did because they were clearly, some of them were shaving twice a day. At least. <laughs> No mullets at that place, I noticed. But they was they were very thoughtful, and and they were all very sure that their obvious privilege wasn't going to uh, kind of be very apparent when they left school. But it really will be, guys. It really will be. And I hope you do very well with your lives and your choices. Perplexed Eva from Melbourne in Australia uh, takes us on a bit of a different jaunt. Dear Fian Jane, long time listener, first time correspondent. Uh, in Australia, Christmas comes alongside the end of the academic year, so it's at the start of a six-week break and summer holidays. The country pretty well stops for the month of January, so very few businesses are open, which means little progress can be made on almost anything. We were talking about this on the programme yesterday, whether January was a kind of fertile month for creativity or just a month where you sat still. Uh, snows on the Christmas cards, says Eva. Spray snow on windows and, of course, all the outdoor lights was as it isn't dark until 9pm, the kiddies don't enjoy the full impact of the lights. 
<laughs> Never thought of that. Oh, thoughts and prayers. <laughs> Eva says often we feast on a hot turkey roast with all the trimmings and plum pudding, air conditioning blasting. It was 30 degrees this Christmas day in Melbourne. We enjoyed lunch outside a marquee, lots of prawns alongside baked ham, and I've perfected the perfect Christmas pudding ice cream. My lovely. final comment is I've thoroughly enjoyed many Christmas days in the Northern Hemisphere and look forward to more. To me, it just feels right to celebrate this festive holiday during winter. Wishing you a happy and healthy 2023. I really like the sound of that Christmas, actually, Eva. Mm. And maybe that's where we'll head to next year. Eva, thank you. And to contact what passes for this podcast, you can do so by emailing janeandfee at times.radio. If you haven't heard the live radio show, give it a whirl. We're wittering on Monday to Thursday between three o'clock and five GMT. Is that right? It is, but I've got distracted again because when the, there's a screen that shows the television when you're rabbiting on and uh, there's some poor person on pointless who's got none and there's a person who's got 24. But because that's pointless, does do they win if they've got naught? Or do they win if they've got 24? Have, you, have they got points for not getting points? This is why we have yet to appear on Pointless, despite being asked a couple of times. We can't, can we? No, I, don't, I really don't think we can. Uh, tomorrow's guest is the writer Nadine Matheson. She's also a lawyer. And her book, her latest book, is called The Binding Room. And it starts with a couple of bodies. Anyway, let's. Yeah. Bit, there's plenty to discuss and it's all a bit gory. That's I'm tomorrow. I'm girding my loins uh, to read that in bed tonight and uh, I may have to call you. No, you know, you, you, <laughs> we, we've stopped that now. You've been told. <laughs> have a good evening. <laughs> You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live, uh, then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.